Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. My name is Roy Budget, and I'm the president of the Events Committee of the London Institute of Banking and Finance, London and South East Committee. And I'm very pleased to welcome our guest speaker tonight, Casper Mann. Casper uh, uh, got a degree from St Andrews University, Scotland, a first-class honours degree in economics and maths in 1991, uh, winning the Nisbet Prize in his year. He's a quantitative background and has been involved with swap trading for 20 years in the last five years in balance sheet optimization. In 2002, he went to New York to 2005 as a swaps dealer, a trader, and moved back to the UK as head of uh, trading in the UK uh, derivatives. This is a trader speaking, so hold on to your seats and uh, have a very enjoyable uh, evening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roy. Um, firstly, thank you all for taking the time out to come and uh, listen to this presentation. I know I've got a bit of a competition tonight with uh, the sunshine rather than the European elections that are calling us to the polling booth. So uh, I hope I keep you entertained for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Um, as uh, Roy has uh, introduced uh, who I am, I don't need to recap over that. Um, but um, what I hope to do tonight is to give you some sort of insight into the role of derivatives in banks, um, the fact that uh, they're often viewed as something fairly toxic. Um, I hope to dispel some of those uh, views uh, or perceptions about them and demonstrate that they are actually uh, core to the world's financial system. Um, and I believe they will always be core to the world's financial system in order to allow the dissemination of risk and to allow the most optimal outcomes between borrowers and savers. Um, so I think we may as well kick off into the first slide. And I want to give some context as to where derivatives sit in banks and what banks actually do. So I believe the role of banks can be characterized into two specific threads. The facilitation of the payment mechanism, and that's from everything from when you go down to pay for your shopping uh, at Tesco's to actually taking out a loan from your bank or placing money on deposit. The quantitative easing uh, that the central banks have engaged in post-GFC has, of course, been there to ensure that the payments mechanism, the transmission mechanism, remained intact. It was seriously challenged in 2008, and to some extent, the cause of that challenge was derivatives or securitized subprime mortgage contracts. But what I'm really going to speak about tonight is the intermediation of risk. And I think this is the key role banks play in terms of warehousing risk, because borrowers and savers, of course, have mismatches. We don't all do things at the same time. And the role of banks is to take on that risk and parcel it out to facilitate the world's financial system, to keep borrowers and lenders in check. The price of money being the clearing factor for where borrowers and lenders actually transact with each other. And I think that derivatives are, in essence, the key currency of risk exchange in financial markets. They are deep and liquid. 
often viewed as not transparent, but I hopefully will demonstrate that derivatives, actually the pricing of them and the quotes that we see are very, very liquid and transparent now. And since we've had um, the global financial crisis, the regulations that have come down as a result have sought to clear up or reinforce some of the conduct and governance issues that were perhaps somewhat lacking pre-2008. There's no doubt about it, the world is a very different place from what it was pre-2008. Now, there's two sides to banking. There's the retail, the commercial banking side, and there's the investment banking side. Retail and commercial, it tends to be accrual accounting, um, the world of non-mark-to-market, whereas the investment banking, the trading side, is driven by mark-to-market, which creates volatility in earnings because everything is taken or valued in today's money, and it creates capital volatility. And the role of derivatives is not just to hedge interest rate risk that arises from customers wanting to borrow large quantities of money or from customers wanting to place large amounts of money, whether you're on the corporate side or whether you're on the life fund side, insurance side, pension fund side. It's, it's there effectively to... It, it, creates, it creates a volatility that we need to manage and that P&L that we have and the capital risk that we have and the liquidity management is all handled in essence, with derivative contracts. So as I said, net interest income is the side of the retail and commercial, and investment banking is fair value and commission. And this is what really separates the two sides. Now, in investment banking, you have predominantly trading and a trading floor, which is used to price derivative contracts but you have a treasury as well, a treasury function, and the treasury function, of course, services the retail and commercial side of banks, and they use derivative contracts as well. In fact, if they weren't able to use derivative contracts, they would struggle to fund their banks. Banks are funded through deposits and through bond issuance um, and hybrid capital and, of course, equity. Um, for a bank such as Handels Banken, um, we use the capital markets frequently, so from a treasury perspective, we will tap the world's funding pools and we will then use derivative contracts to swap that back into the currency of choice, uh, mainly sterling and Swedish crowns and Norwegian. We have a 200-plus branch network now in the UK, a balance sheet uh, close to £25 billion if you include the deposits that we have with the Bank of England. And so we have an enormous amount of demand for sterling capital as well as Swedish capital and Norwegian capital, which pretty much makes up the bulk of the 500 billion Swedish crowns of risk-weighted assets that we carry. So the role of derivatives. And I've sort of tried to break this down into, uh, in, in, into a few key pieces. I consider the best description of derivatives as the world's financial oil. In terms of the nexus or universe of financial instruments, it's almost like a pyramid or a tree. You start at the base with sovereign debt, but up to agency debt, supranational debt, corporate debt, high-yield debt, structured notes, 
and all the other peculiar types of financial instruments that you can now buy, um, which have leverage in them via ETFs, etc., etc. Swaps or derivatives, and I'm specifically talking about interest rate or fixed income derivatives tonight, are the oil which allows us to make everything comparable on the same basis. I'll get back to what I really mean by a swap, and I hope it's not going to be overly technical, so there's going to be a fl flavor of some tech and some sort of not-so-technical explanations for what swaps are and to demonstrate how they actually really are the financial oil that stitches the world's markets together. Swaps or interest rate swaps allow us to exploit comparative advantage. Um, what I mean by that, they allow us or allow the markets to um, equilibrate excess demand versus excess supply for funds. You may have uh, a name in, in Switzerland, say Nestle, whose name is particularly popular with Midwestern pension funds who like to buy five-year fixed dollar paper with Nestle's name attached to it. But Nestle don't need five-year fixed-rate dollars. They may need probably floating-rate Swiss francs. So they can issue in Swiss in US dollars and then use the world's cross-currency markets, dollars versus Swiss francs, to bring that money back into Swiss francs. And therefore, they're left with a liability in Swiss LIBOR plus something, which is cheaper than them just issuing a Swiss franc note. So they've, in effect, exploited a comparative advantage of being able to borrow more cheaply in dollars, although they don't need dollars, and bring it back to Swiss, which is where they actually need the cash. That's what I mean by exploiting comparative advantage. It's often used as the classic example for why derivatives are used and, and, and the, the main use or, or, or the, the main driver for their existence. So as I say, swaps equilibrate excess demand and supply across world financial markets. They allow us to hedge interest rate, capital, and pension risk. Interest rate risk is endemic to almost everything we do in financial markets. If I lend money or borrow money, I'm sensitive to interest rates going up. And the most deep and liquid way to exchange that risk from one player to another, to intermediate that risk, is to use derivative markets. They're limitless in terms of their supply. They're standardized contracts that are traded over the counter, hence they're called OTC contracts. They're not dissimilar to futures contracts that trade on futures exchanges. As we'll see, most swaps now, if eligible, are mandated to be cleared by EMEA across CCPs, central counterparts. They're customizable as well, as well as being standardized. So they are incredibly flexible, and they can be tailored to whatever your requirements, in essence, are. In terms of a swap, an OTC swap versus an on-exchange futures contract, they're not that different. A futures contract is a single period swap, whereas a swap is normally a, effectively a strip of futures contracts that are traded off the exchange, although post-2008, they're mainly mandated to be cleared. Capital and pension risk. Capital risk is something we'll talk about towards the end of the presentation, something that's become 
much more in focus post-2008 as the regulators have toughened up on uh, the risk weights that are attached to derivatives. Um, we've seen the rise of all positions being collateralized. And we're not just talking about trades being collateralized for the value they have today, but for the potential value they may have in the future. And in terms of capital management, the capital you have to post against these positions, that has become much more onerous. And there is interest rate risk within your capital structure. Uh, notwithstanding, when we price interest rate derivatives for our customers, we, not look, we don't just look at what the break-even interbank price is, but we look at how we believe the cost of capital will evolve, or the capital that we have to set against these tickets, we have to factor in the cost of that expected capital over the life of these transactions. And that has become increasingly complex. And as it said at the beginning, as Roy said at the beginning, my role now is much more about capital management than it is about interest rate swap trading. For the last four years, our bank has been focused primarily on reducing our capital footprint as a result of our legacy derivative portfolios. And I now work on what's known as an XVA desk. Uh, I apologize for the acronyms. Trading floors are littered with acronyms. XVA effectively refers to the value adjustments that go into a break-even swap price. When I mean a break-even swap price, it's the screens that are tradable where we can exchange risk between bank A and bank B. That's all well and good when you put these trades across clearing. But when you trade with a customer, these trades are not clearable. And they sit off the balance sheet. They attract a risk weight that is not the 2% risk weight that a CCP will, um, uh, trades that are cleared will attract only a 2% risk weight. There'll be a risk weight of anything up to 50%. And of course, they're based on the expected positive exposure that swap may have over the life because what we're worried about as a bank is when people owe us money, not when we owe people money, of course, in terms of the capital we have to set against. The more people owe us money on our portfolios, the more capital we have to set against them. Uh, needless to say, all banks have different return on equity targets. And so the internal cost of capital will vary from one bank to another. And it's made the world of derivative pricing very idiosyncratic. The prices are never the same from one bank to another in terms of how they will price corporate A versus another bank pricing corporate A. They may have a different set of exposures to corporate A. Uh, and therefore, they have different netting. They have different expected positive exposures, which by default will define the expected capital cost and therefore the amount of basis points or adjustment they need to make to that derivative's price. This is what has made derivative pricing and trading so very different since 2008 when risk weights were low, capital was abundant, and there were not nearly the number of value adjustments that we see today in swap pricing. As I said, off-balance sheet items are subject to mark-to-market, so no accrue accounting. So if it all goes wrong, you find out at the end of the day when you hit your reval and the system will knock out and say, today, the present value of your book has moved by a million pounds, half a million pounds, depending on the size of the bank and the risk appetite will determine the amount of risk that you may be carrying in your trading book. 
Um, and as a result, it creates capital volatility. Um, valuations, as I say, are opaque and complex because they are very idiosyncratic, because there are so many factors driving derivative valuations these days. Um, as I said at the beginning, they do have uh, the propensity to have a bad reputation. Um, in 1998, there was a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management um, that almost took down the world's financial markets. Alan Greenspan, who was the chair of uh, the Federal Reserve at the time, corralled all the banks into uh, supporting an orderly unwind of LTCM's positions. Their leverage was staggering. They had, at point of failure, $1 of equity for every $600 worth of position, and they had some monster positions. I think they had almost 40% of the entire Danish mortgage market in their portfolio. They had enormous convergence plays on, and they achieved that leverage with derivatives. Buffett definitely doesn't like derivatives. He bought Genry in 1995, which is part and part of his insurance operation. They bought a lot of long-dated derivatives and then spent the next 10 years trying to get out of them with not a great deal of success. It cost them a fortune. Leverage. A lot of leverage in them. Management liquidity portfolios as well. So banks have to carry high-quality liquid, uh, high liquid assets, and they will often will not want to hold the interest rate risk implicit in buying a bond. You buy a German government bond in 10 years, it has 10-year risk on it. And therefore, you may want to use a derivative to swap that fixed risk down to a floating risk. So you actually hold it as a spread over your rival. Or a cross-currency swap to spread it over sterling libel, whatever your, your home currency is, which is clearly where you have the ability to fund yourself probably the most cheaply. Um, so they have a lot of roles. So what is a swap? Sounds horrendous. Annual strips of compounded Ford libel. Libel, poisonous word as well. Post-2008, we've seen really the demise of libel, the rigging of libel, all the trials. Uh, we've got uh, a few traders who are now languishing in prison. Tom Hayes being the most infamous of those, sentenced to 14 years for manipulating libel, and certainly was the precursor to the uh, benchmark review that is going on where the FCA will no longer compel banks to publish libel um, as of Deck 21. What's actually going to come to replace it? We believe it's going to be uh, the reformed Sonia rate, or, which is effectively an overnight rate. Banks do not trust each other to lend money other than to themselves in overnight. And hence, the collateralization of swaps is reference to overnight rates. So you've seen a big change in the way in which swaps are discounted. But we still use LIBOR to derive the expected cash flows, but we just discount those back not with LIBOR anymore. We discount them back with overnight index swaps instead. And that's had a profound impact. And we'll, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. But in essence, swaps are LIBOR. So if I've got a two-year swap versus three-month LIBOR, it is effectively three-month LIBOR. We know that today. Where's three-month LIBOR in three months' time? We call that a three-sixes forward rate agreement, or three-sixes FRA, a six is nine FRA, nine's 12s, all the way up to a 21s, 24s. 
So you've got eight FRAs, eight sets of LIBOR, starting with the LIBOR fix today and all those LIBORs in the future. We strip them all together and annualize them, and that is a two-year swap versus three-month LIBOR. Same if it's got six months, except LIBOR six months, or one month, etc. So a swap is effectively just the average of forward LIBOR over a given period. Um, they're customized OTC agreements to exchange one set of interest payments for another, typically fixed versus float. They don't have to be. They don't raise money. They engineer the cost of money. So you do not find yourself holding any cash as a result of entering into a swap transaction. It allows you to engineer the basis on which you're paying for that money, whether you're paying fixed or floating. So if you've issued a bond, for example, where typically you'll be paying a fixed rate of interest, you could then enter, enter into a swap where you receive fixed and pay three months or six months liable plus a spread, depending on where your bond trades relative to where the fixed rate and the swap actually exists. And we're going to have a little look at a specific example um, of where our mortgage institute, Stats Hypotech, where they issued a bond and then used that to swap that into three-month stible, or spread over three-month stible. Um, so as I say, it involves no principal, just an exchange of interest, and it is collateralized against its market value. In the same way, a futures contract is settled to market every few hours, and you'll be made to make uh, payments or receive payments from the exchange as a result of the movement in the market for your positions. Swaps are the same now, except this is done at the end of the day rather than continually through the day if the swap is off exchange. If it's, off ex if it's on exchange, the calls, as I say, are normally every two hours. So that is how intense the mark-to-market -market process of derivative contracts has now become. And this is a big feature of the post-2008 world. And there was a lot of talk about how there would be a huge shortage of quality collateral because you can only collateralize your swaps with cash or with high-quality government bonds with a haircut. Haircuts take account of the fact that government bonds can move as a result of interest rates moving and, of course, of credit considerations as well. More recently, potential future exposure, so not just the exposure that a swap has, is also being margined. Uh, or known as independent amount, and like initial margin, which exists on exchanges, this is to capture the potential future exposure for bilateral transactions. We now have, as I say, independent amount, which covers the potential future exposure on a swap in the same way in which futures exchanges and CCPs demand a payment of cash to cover how a swap or a futures contract may move in value over a specified period of time. Volumes. The volumes that get exchanged in the derivatives markets are exceedingly large. Um, and we break them down basically by exchange, um, for exchange traded, and the BIS tend to produce estimates for the OTC stuff. I've got some numbers for LCH volumes and some BIS uh, numbers for outstandings. And I think we'll come back to that in a minute. Let me just find this. So for OTC volumes, um, 
actually the notional of outstanding OTC derivative contracts increased from $532 trillion to $595. Now, these numbers sound horrendously large because they're gross numbers, but they are large all the same. Um, and although there is a lot more housekeeping of derivative positions today than there was through compression and termin early termination of positions, the amount of notional outstanding still continues to grow. If it was growing unchecked, these numbers would be off the scale, enormous. Um, and as I say now, dealers clear around 76% of all interest rate derivatives through uh, central counterparties, the LCH being the predominant central counterparty for interest rate swaps. This has definitely caused some consternation amongst our European regulators who have said in the event of a hard Brexit, they may no longer recognize the LCH as a qualifying exchange. This would be catastrophic for European banks and make them insolvent in a stroke overnight. The 2% risk weight they have applied to their portfolios, I mean, I'll show you Deutsche Bank's uh, balance sheet at the end, would in an instant make Europe's banks insolvent. So I don't think they'll be doing it anytime soon. Um, this was just a slide about bond futures. These to actually trade on exchange. Very similar in essence to swaps, apart from the fact they are utterly standardized, can't be customized at all. And we use these to lay off our risk. This is the LCH volumes, daily volumes. In US dollars, $4 trillion worth of derivative contracts trade every day across the LCH. And the notional outstanding is 353 trillion. This is just at the LCH. You see derivatives cleared at the CME, the NASDAQ as well, as well as exchanges in the Far East. There's a lot of these things around. Pricing interest. My two favorite words when it comes to pricing derivatives are equivalence and replication. Equivalence. Why would you accept a decompounded rate of 494? when you can get 5.1% annually. 4.94 semi is equivalent to 5% annually, uh, whereas 5.1% uh, is 5.035. I'm not going to accept. It's a little bit like saying, would you accept two 20s and a 5 for a £50 note? Everything we do is about deriving equivalence because we're asked to express things in multiple ways. A client may say, no, I want the rate to be quarterly. No, I want it to accrue actual over 360 rather than 30 over 360. That's the day count reference. Everything from the way in which we build our yield curves to value instruments that we cannot see on the screens is based on internally consistent rates, zero coupon rates, which take into account the reinvestment of the coupons we receive those forward rates of interest implied by the yield curve. Replication, in essence, this is how we can derive a price of a derivative by saying, how can I replicate the cash flows of what I'm being asked to do here? And we're going to have a bit of a formal representation of how this sort of works for a bond issue. Arbitrage-free boundaries, if you produce prices 
or have models that breach arbitrage free boundaries, then you, someone can make a, have, a, have a free bet. So this is one of the um, constraints on, on any model construction, is that you cannot create um, uh, arbitrage free trades. Everyone will jump on them. If I can buy uh, an asset at A and replicate it with B and C and simultaneously sell them versus buying A and make a profit, clearly something's gone wrong. I think we'd all do that till the cows come home. The math and the way markets have developed has become increasingly complex. I was telling you right at the beginning that in 1998, 1999, uh, Bill Clinton stopped funding NASA and a lot of NASA scientists flooded into Wall Street. And there's no doubt about it. They were responsible for the proliferation of some very complex structures. And there are some very, very clever people who work in the city, in Wall Street, constructing models to the extent now that it is very specialized, the world in which we now live in derivatives. So quants do quant work, traders do trading, salespeople do sales. When I first started out, trading would involve a bit of Excel work, getting stuck into creating your own more. Um, so we leave that to the experts, to the people who, who are PhD maths guys. And we use Newton solvers and Christ knows what. But we still use calculators as sanity checks to make sure that we're not doing something completely crazy computer goes mad from time to time. We need to have some sort of sanity check to make sure we haven't gone wrong. So HP calculators are a trader's friend. Um, complex derivatives require term structure model like a Hull and White. And now we're getting to the really weird esoteric stuff. And back to XVA, as I say, management of counterparty credit risk, which is default risk, CVA, which is incremental change of credit quality, collateral um, uh, value adjustment, which is the fact that trades in bilateral space are governed by s credit support annexes where multiple types of collateral can be delivered, whereas on an exchange, a Swedish krona derivative must be collateralized with Swedish krona. A euro derivative transaction must be collateralized with euros. This creates a different discounting environment and therefore, there's a valuation adjustment if you take a trade from being in bilateral space and pop it into cleared space. Um, initial margin, as I said, I did apologize for all the acronyms, and the targeted ROE that your bank has for the activities that you have. Derivatives use up scarce capital, and capital has to be allocated on the basis of where it generates a return that's acceptable for the treasury that's issuing that capital. Structured repo, which is just uh, another way to effectively monetize the collateral that you get in or you post against a swap. And these are used to help to enhance the return that a trading floor attempts to generate and hit its targeted return on equity. So how do we actually go about replication, pricing, and hedging? We have the benchmark curves. The benchmark curves are these deep liquid swap rates that trade in real time from 7 a.m. in London all the way through until about 6 p.m. in the evening when the futures exchanges close, because futures exchanges effectively are driving these prices as well. And there's a lot of circularity to what's going on, what's driving what. And it's difficult to actually pin it down where 
it starts and begin, where it starts and ends in terms of what drives what. But ultimately now swaps have taken over the role as being the most liquid instrument. They're, commod they're commoditized. So what you see on the screens from one year through to 30 year, you see two-way prices being supported in certain amounts uh, of notional by banks as diverse, maybe as five or six banks, and you can just click on screens and trade them um, to exchange your risk. Zero coupon rates, as I said, are internally consistent rates, which allow us to build a valuation framework to infer prices or value unobservable, non-directly observable financial contracts. Purple uh, for dates which are not straight run, like a, a one and a quarter year or one and a half year, because generally the benchmark rates tend to reference one year, two year, whole year rates. Internally consistent, additive, triangular bumps is to do with how we stress our portfolios and bump the curve and see how much the present value of the position changes. And of course, a zero rate allows a single horizon discounting. So you can take a cash flow in the future and discount it all the way back to today uh, and express it in a common metric, net present value, which is the uh, currency of traders, net present value. Exploiting arbitrage opportunities, so riskless profit via replication, as we talked about, buying A and simultaneously replicating with B and C and selling B and C together as they replicate A and buying A and creating a risk-free profit. FX forwards can be combined with an interest rate swap and a basis swap to create a replication. Uh, this is not a pure because you'll be left with some type of mismatch risk. It won't be exact. And you can actually see some insane examples as a result of central bank actions over the last 10 years that have driven cross-currency swaps to such levels that you could buy New Zealand debt and asset swap it into US dollar LIBOR. And you could do the same with Swiss francs and swap that into US dollar LIBOR and have a significant pickup for Swiss paper versus New Zealand paper. And Swiss paper in the credit default swap market trades enormously tighter than Kiwi debt. So you get these anomalies that can occur by combining derivatives with sovereign paper as a result of distortions in uh, derivative markets from quantitative easing and central bank action. This is not a pure arbitrage because for all sorts of reasons you're going to have to hold it and converge because you could effectively create the asset swap and then sell the underlying credit default swap and you've got a big margin in it but there's a lot of obstacles for many people to trade derivatives in this way. Segmentation, capital considerations, markets don't realign as fast as expected. Um, there's a, a maxim that we often refer to that markets can remain irrational for a lot longer than you can remain solvent. Um, and this has the capacity to certainly take you out. Markets have this propensity to sniff out weak hands and move to a place to cause maximum damage. So here's an example of how we use a derivative to create the desired borrowing target for a mortgage issue, in this case, Stats Hypotech. So this is generally how it happens on the day. We'll get a notification that's published into the public domain, so everyone sees it at the same time. Uh, the traders 
are subjected to Chinese walls in the same way that many parts of a bank are with sensitive information. So we have no advantage over the general market in terms of the information that's coming in. And here it expresses an intention to issue a euro benchmark. That's how we refer to them. Benchmark means it's going to be a billion euros or more. The numbers are always big. The guidance where the bank thinks it's going to be able to uh, issue its paper, mid swaps plus 11 basis points, gives the terms, fixed coupon, paid annually, the accrual will be uh, actual, actual. These are all definitions that are spec'd out under an ISDA master agreement, which is used to govern derivatives trading. Um, general bits and pieces about the fees, the banks that are going to be underwriting the issue, they have an obligation to make a market in this bond for the life of it. It's going to be uh, a seven-year paper. So these market makers, these, these banks, for the fee, they're going to have to make a price in this bond uh, for as long as it's in existence, which will be seven years unless it's retired by being brought back early. Um, and as it say, books open today's business uh, is going to be today. So that's the first time we hear about this, and we're now primed uh, to manage the interest rate risk that will come as a result of it. Now, as Handel's Bank, and we will find, the trading arm, we will find that typically the Treasury Department will have a beauty parade to find a bank that will service this swap, to swap this bond into Swedish krona, into floating Swedish krona spread over the Stibor index, which is the Swedish equivalent of LIBOR, in order to give our Treasury the desired cost of funds that they're looking for. And it won't necessarily fall to us because we may not be competitive in the quote versus another bank, although there are capital considerations. But the big, the, the big obstacle for Handelsbanken's trading arm to service our Treasury is hedge accounting. And hedge accounting allows the Treasury to accrue account the derivative rather than market to market and therefore be able to offset the mark to market volatility on the swap they're going to do versus the bond so they can post it into their net interest income and have a nice smooth cost of funds as opposed to mark to market rocking about. But in order to do that, they need to satisfy various international accounting standards, namely producing an external hedge, um, which means finding another bank on the outside to do the swap. Now we've got, ah, oh, here we go. So, um, as I say, the initial price talk is mid-swaps plus seven. Um, and um, the derivatives market indicates to the origination desk that the Treasury are going to be able to achieve funds of a billion plus euros once swapped at a rate of 34 basis points over three months stable. But they're going to have to enter two, three derivatives to do that. Although, in essence, they will face one derivatives contract, but the hedging bank that provides it will have to enter into three transactions to create this. So once the origination team tells the Treasury, yes, we think we can achieve your target of three months stable plus 34 basis points, then we get going on this. 
Here are the screens. So this is a typical benchmark screen. This is euros versus six months. These are two-way prices. As you can see, they're incredibly tight. 0.393% is the bid side versus 0.397% is the offered side. This, again, is a cross-currency screen. Again, you can trade in big, big size on very, very tight spreads. These are much wider, but it's the mid that is important for the pricing. So the pricing of the bond. So we now are going to use the IRS and the basis swaps to derive this break-even level and solve for the spread. There's also going to be some XVAs involved if you are another bank because you're going to have to factor in how the, the mark-to-market on this will evolve and therefore the amount of expected capital cost. So this is the, uh, the, the, the intuitive... I hope intuitive algebraic representation of what we're going to do here. So I've done it all in one piece, but it's probably best for some of you just to work this through when I've got the pack at the end. But in essence, I've tried to show how it flows through. We're solving for X. X is a function of the hedge costs. So the first thing is, as a hedging bank, because I'm paying fixed to the issuer, he, he is paying fixed to bond. Uh, bond investors, he needs to receive fixed. My treasury needs to receive fixed, and he wants to pay three months' liable plus X. So how can I actually solve for this X? I need first to receive fixed euro. Fixed swaps are, in essence, a strip of, of liable. In this case, six-month liable. Liquid euro swaps settle against six-month liable. But six-month liable is no good because the cross-currency market works three months against three months. So I now need to enter into another swap, where I receive six-month arrival and I pay three-month arrival plus Y. There is always a spread on three-month arrival because lending six-month money is more expensive than lending three-month money in terms of balance sheet cost. So plus Y always tends to be a positive number. That number grew very, very large during the GFC. And it's now come back to much more manageable levels. I now have swapped my fixed exposure to the Treasury desk into three-month Euribor plus Y. But I need to get it into Stiebel. So I now enter into a cross-currency swap where I receive three-month Euribor and I pay three-month Stiebel plus Z. Again, this is a liquid market. This is the linkage between Euros and Swedish. These markets exist for every LIBOR, EIBOR index in the world. And because ultimately dollar LIBOR is the world's base financial currency, and everything spreads off it. So it's a relative relationship of every currency in LIBOR space to each other. So now, with a little bit of fancy, simple algebraic substitution, you can see that you end up showing that, I won't go through it, that the fixed euro is equal to three months LIBOR plus Z plus Y, these two terms, where ultimately Z plus Y determines this break-even spread. This is the spread I can now show to my treasury, to the, if I was doing the trade internally, or that BNP, Deutsche, Bank of America would show to my treasury as a result of the beauty parade. And then the treasury would make a decision about who they go for. So this is how it ends up looking. You end up with a break-even spread. This is the coupon on the bond, mid-swaps plus seven. And then we swap it all up and we produce, and it ends up solving for a spread over Stiebel of 33.89. The reason everything goes to normally two decimal places is that if you're issuing a billion euros a seven-year, it has enormous amount of risk. For every 1%, 0.01% of a rate, the interest rates move, and this is 
the currency in which we manage or, or, or refer to or quantify risk, the P&L, the present value of your position, will shift by over 800,000 euros. So every point really counts here, and that's why everyone goes to basically two decimal places. This is, this is uh, almost to a millionth of a percent. This is a Bloomberg screen, again, just showing you that we come up with a break-even rate of 33.86. And you can see Bloomberg's very clever. This is the way in which all traders, all fixed-income traders generally have Bloomberg. And it's an extremely powerful way to disseminate prices, allow us to trade, and also to see and talk to each other as well. Um, and you can sit and solve for whatever you want to and always sit to solve for a NPV of zero. No one wants to enter into a trade with a negative NPV. I mean, I'd happily enter into one with a positive NPV. I don't think the person on the other side would be too happy about that, though. And here's the term sheet once the deal is done. And this is issued, and we go out, and we, uh, uh, you know, everyone's usually very happy. The bank's got its bond aware at a certain spread, and um, its uh, fees paid to all the syndicate banks and generally there's a, there's a, 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 a lot of uh, uh, congratulatory backslapping when uh, we get the risk off the books and the bank has effectively placed its bond and has raised the cash that it's looking to to replenish its capital. How much can rates move in a day? Well, we can glean that from option markets and this is just a screen from Bloomberg. These are all tradable. And it looks horrendous, but these are swaption volatilities, and it's saying how much uh, does it cost to buy a swaption straddle where you effectively buy um, a call and a put at the same time to give you prediction whether it goes up or down, and all you care about is the volatility. And we can translate that into a daily break-even expectation in terms of rates, just using a little bit of math. And it's square root of time effectively allows us to uh, decompose annual volatility into daily volatility. And we have to adjust by what the prevailing forward rate at the time is, because in this case, it was, uh, I think it was uh, uh, a one-year into seven-year rate. So one month into seven-year. So it's got a vol of 109.7 basis points annualized. The actual rate, the interest rate for uh, one month into seven-year is... 28.3 basis points at the time. I mean, all rates are so low these days. So we can now actually deduce with a bit of stochastic maths that we expect the seven-year rate to move about two basis points on average every day over a one-month period, over 22 trading days. It gives us some idea about what the market's expecting to move every day. So it at least gives us some anchoring as to how much the P&L, if we carry or can't get rid of the risk, may cost us. So the hedge flows, oh dear, we back to, oh, is this? So I don't want to spend too much because we're a bit tight for time, but this is just a, a pictorial representation of what I've been talking about. And I've got probably slightly, this again is just demonstrating, we, we love these flow diagrams and swaps. It allows us, I think, to um, get a pictorial representation that allows you to express something quite complex into something a little bit more clear. Again, this is just a screen about uh, banks making prices and in the size in which they're doing. These are all in millions, so 75 million by 75 million being made by Citadel. 
the world's uh, most prolific swap market maker, um, not a bank, so it's a, it's a hedge fund. Um, and these now dominate fixed income space in a big way. Um, we import the trade into our risk management system, um, which allows us to manage or see live P&L. It's got rates going into it all the time, so we can see what the profit and loss is at any moment in time. We can quantify all the risks, uh, and we can look at all the XVAs associated with the swap as well. This is what a ticket looks like. Bits and pieces, I put it in as a dummy counterparty. You can see it's 1.25 billion, which is what this was. Here's the break-even spread on the ticket, and here's the present value. The reason it's not zero is because the XVAs are there to capture the expected capital cost, which, again, is all in present value terms. So it looks like this swap has got a lot of money, but this swap is going to, or is expected to carry a lot of capital cost over the life of, and hence you have this P&L from the XVA charges up front. The risk, this is how typically a risk looks like. So we're saying for every one basis point that rates go up on the discount curve, we expect to make 862,000 euros for every one basis point. Everything's measured in one basis point. That rates on the Ford three-month Stiebel Swedish curve goes up. It's 825,000 euros. You can see that the display currency is in euros. And for the Swedish discounting, the sign is the opposite way because we are receiving that. So that gives you some idea about how we represent the risks. Regulatory challenges post-2008. And as a result of what happened to the world in 2008, we've had a raft of regulatory changes, a lot of which the bank's been locked out of discussions because we became pariahs. And as a result, there have been some unintended consequences from these uh, regulatory changes that have promoted volatility in the world's financial markets and reduced banks' ability to warehouse risk, which is ultimately the function that banks, or the bank's primarily, pri primary function. But the world is a lot safer in banking space than it was back then. I'm not so sure it's so safe in the buy side, so the asset managers, where you have BlackRock with a balance sheet of over $3 trillion. So there is a big concentration of risk. It's just been shifted away from banks. Lots of names here. Amir, this compulsion to clear eligible products. Dodd-Frank, which banned prop trading. Basel III. We have new capital regimes called standardized approach, CC, uh, counterbody credit risk. Um, we have new changes to um, uh, jet calculating general risk. Uh, we have this bilateral IM, or independent amount, as we talked about, and we have this RFR, risk-free review, the benchmark review of liable to transition into um, overnight index rates as opposed to liable on the basis they're observable and physically traded as opposed to liable, which isn't traded. Liable is a defunct concept. Unfortunately, it settles... Um, hundreds and hundreds of trillions of securities. And it's not just derivatives, but it's also structured loans, syndicated loans, corporate loans. LIBOR tends not to be used on individual banking level. Not many people's mortgages are referenced to LIBOR, but corp loans are all referenced to LIBOR. It's a big challenge. Unintended consequences, as I said, there is definitely more volatility, although at the same time, volatility has been dampened by people seeking yield and selling optionality. 
but it's a bit of an illusion. And every now and again, we get a reminder of this when there are huge sell-offs, whether it be the flash crash in Sterling a few years back or the, I think we had an S&P crash where at one point Accenture hit $0 before rebounding to $37 in six minutes. There is some scary stuff going out there. And not least of all, dealers can't carry inventory anymore. Banks have a much smaller appetite for risk, and it's much more expensive to carry risk than it was before. As a result, there is less ability to warehouse, and so the volatility when people want to unwind something is much greater than it used to be. To say, in the last 13 years, the uh, investment-grade corporate bond market has more than doubled, while dealer inventories are being turned over 16 times faster than they were in 2007. Um, Mitigating the cost, compression, coupon blending, early termination, alternate. these are all terms that are applied to actions, post-trade actions on the clearing exchanges to keep our inventories as tight and as compact as possible. They're expensive to carry. We want to lose the line items as much as we can and keep the risk down to the absolute core. You can see here that the amount of uh, uh, notional outstanding, if it hadn't been... Uh, well, in terms of cumulative compression, we've seen over that two trillion, two thousand trillion dollars worth of notional has been compressed since 2017. It, it, the numbers are enormous. Collateral has had an enormous impact on um, on the pricing of derivative transactions, um, and as a result of uh, forward LIBOR now being discounted using overnight rates rather than LIBOR we have seen a big change in valuation. It was rumored Goldman Sachs made over $500 million from this transformation process back in 2003, 2002. Um, the whole point of having this is that the collateral that is posted against the swap is a mirror for the roll down of a swap down its yield curve so you don't get a discontinuity. And as I say, the value of a swap is driven by not just rate, but also by the passage of time. If you can hold rates constant and shift the day forward, the valuation of a swap will change. So, for example, the two-year rate, if realized rates are exactly as expected at the time of pricing, i.e. the forward rates that we had at the time we priced the two-year swap are realized, then we will find that in each point in time where we look to value on a one-month basis, what we're looking at is that swap that was two years is now a 23-month swap in one month's time, and so on. And you compare these to the fixed rates, and you will have a P&L every time. Although when you come all the way down to it and finish the trade in 24 months, if the realized rates are the same as the forward rates, that swap will have made no money whatsoever. The only change in value if the forward rates are not realized, i.e. something happens which we didn't expect at the time. XVA's impact on the swap price, as I say, the idea here is, is to quantify the expected capital cost over the life of the contract when pricing at the start. Of course, what we expect and what happens is not necessarily ever the case, but we have to start somewhere. It's the only basis on which we can try and quantify what we should charge for a swap with a particular counterparty that lasts for a particular period of time. Um, so, as I say, we need to establish the expected positive exposure. We will use the forward curve and volatilities to try and generate multiple possible paths, normally a 1,000-plus paths. 
and then we take a 50th centile on it and we use that to establish how much we think the swap will be worth over the life of. We look at netting offsets. We establish uh, the type of uh, collateral that the counterpart may or may not post. A lot of counterparts don't post collateral. The European Investment Bank only signs one-sided CSAs. So they only receive money. If their swap is at the money, they will not post money. Uh, the credit rating and the recovery rates are obviously fundamental to calculating how much the capital cost will be. And of course, the internal capital cost, which is the function of the bank's ROE target. And now we just discount all probability-weighted paths, compute the present value of the expected capital cost, and derive the number of basis points that's equivalent to this number and add that into the deal. And that, in essence, is what XVA desks do. I, I know it sounds pretty horrendous. There's a lot of stuff to go through. But this is what really has been driving swap prices since 2008 and made them much more complex than, than they ever were. Um, again, huge incentives because the risk weight at CCPs are so low. And this is why banks want to have all their swaps when they're eligible into clearing. Um, this is just, uh, again, how a representation of how yield curves look. Uh, this is how they are out of today, and this is how they are out of three-year rate in three months' time, three-year rate in six months' time, and so on. Everything about swaps is trading what we think or how the forward rates will actually be, whether we think they're right or wrong. And here's what's interesting. So I took this and did a back, a back test, and we looked at where interest rates were trading in 2009 on the 18th of April. So this was the curve. So 10 years was trading at, let's take the five years. Five years was trading at 327 and a half in sterling. And we expected the five-year rate in 10 years' time. As you see, I've done the test going back 10 years. So this is the curve that prevailed at the time in 2009. And the market expected five-year rates 10 years later, i.e. now, to be 5.03%. Well, they actually turned out to be 1.22%. So the market was wrong by 3.8%. This is not a good advertisement for hedging fixed rate exposure to higher rates, which is why so many corporates who took out swaps back in 08 and 09, expecting the impact of what happened in 08 to be short-lived, have been so badly burnt by this and are now facing huge mark-to-market bills to unwind these long-dated swaps. Um, this is a representation of the activity now going on in non-liable settled derivative transactions. You can see that OIS or overnight index swap trading is now almost um, as, uh, as great as it is in LIBOR space, as IRS space. This is, this is against LIBOR, 10 billion versus 8.277 billion for OAS trading in sterling, notional outstanding. Um, just finally, I wanted to show you Deutsche Bank's balance sheet, which is definitely the most challenged balance sheet out there. So all these transactions that they wrote from the mid-'80s all the way up until the global financial crisis, where all the profit was taken up front, but they have to carry the capital cost for the life of these transactions. And some swaps run for 50 years. So right here, you can see in 2018, they have 320 billion euros 
320 billion, billion euros worth of positive mark to markets on their balance sheet and 301 billion negative mark to markets on their balance sheet. These are just enormous numbers relative to the size of Deutsche Bank's balance sheet as a whole. And their total assets, you see, 1.348 trillion euros. So their derivative mark to markets, which are attracting an enormous capital cost, are a huge drag on the performance of this bank. And it's certainly one of the reasons that Deutsche's share price, I think, is now trading below €7, Euros, which is a record low. They're in big trouble, Deutsche Bank. Um, BNP, big as well, probably the second biggest bank in Europe. And now we have Handelsbanken. I put it in Euros as well. You can see that we have been quite successful. Our balance sheet peaked around 2011 at €15 billion, Euros, and we're down to five. And this is through the actions we've taken to mitigate our exposure by compressing and terminating and migrating trades to a CCP. And the fact that as a bank we have a much lower appetite and always have done for proprietary trading risk. My final slide is the one compliance like me to give. It's the important one as far as they're concerned is our disclaimer. Uh, feel free to read that at your leisure. Uh, I think I've just about uh, wrapped up within the time allocated, Roy. Uh, it was always going to be a struggle to get it all done in the right time. I'm sorry if I rushed parts of it, um, but uh, I think uh, that's normally the nature of these things. I, I don't do these presentations very often, but thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Just with the time, we'll do some very quick questions, and then we'll all break out to the breakout area for wine and you can ask more questions then but we'll just take some questions see if, if you want any just move the microphone around thank you thanks very much um i'm glad this wasn't on the practice of banking syllabus but uh definitely i don't think question. it's got any has it, even, it has got a bit of punctuation in it so many of them <laughs> don't have punctuation no, it's the, old, it the, very old, the old banking exams used to do the institute of bankers as was um just a question on the volumes there. I don't know how many trillion you said every day. How many of the, those volumes are actually backed by genuine borrowing? They are representing, you know, hedging for proper genuine, or is it just back to gambling again? And are they using okay. the same collateral over and over again? It's a great question. In essence, the, the, the volumes I represent are on the screen are gross volumes. So they are everyone's volume added together. So when Bank A trades with Bank B in 100 million, the volumes represented as 200 million. In essence, I would say today, a huge quantity of the volumes, and I, I, I can't give you the percentage, but a huge quantity is backed from real transactions. So from risks that have been delivered to a trading desk, either from its treasury function, either from its capital management function, its XVA desk, or from corporates, or from pension funds and life companies. I think that the days of proprietary trading, which are dominated by hedge funds and specialist buy-side fixed income funds, are where the risks sit now, whereas banks are very much, I think, trading on the back of real flows. In terms of collateral and how much collateral is being pledged and re-pledged, I think now that actually the way in which transparency is so great with 
trades being put across CCPs, that that isn't really the case. There is an abundance of quality collateral. We've seen sovereign um, uh, issuance explode. I, I think uh, what's quite frightening now is, I think last time I saw, it's over 15 trillion euros worth of sovereign securities that yield less than 0%. Governments have been prolific in issuing debt, so there's plenty of collateral out there and good quality collateral at that. Um, so I think in answer to your question, the days of speculative trading um, to a large extent were unwound as a result of Dodd-Frank. I know that President Trump has revoked certain parts of Dodd-Frank if you meet certain criteria, but banks have been de-risked in a big way. More questions? Oh, the, the, lady, uh, the lady behind had a hand up first, yeah. so I'll come back yeah, to thanks. Hi. Um, with regard to, I mean, obviously Nick Leeson was a, um, a fraud, it was, was a rogue. kind of, yeah. Um, but has, has that element of risk diminished by the fact that they're now collateralised rather than uncollateralised? No, I, to be honest, the ability still exists for uh, traders to um, take large risk positions. Uh, and uh, as a result, if they pay off, you take a large risk position over, say, a big economic release like non-farm payrolls and it goes your way, then potentially he's going to be in line for a bonus because he's made a lot of money. But banks are much cleverer now and they understand that a pound of income is not the same as another pound of income. We risk adjust to everything and risk functions have a much, much greater oversight of what is actually going on. So... Is there still the ability for people to act in a fraudulent way? Yes, but it's much harder. I would say conduct rules and governance have come a, a huge way since 2008. They form the cornerstone of trading and the amount of courses and supervision and oversight that we're subjected to is... It, 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 the world's unrecognisable from what it is. But does that mean it can't happen? Does it mean that the likes of Tom Hayes can't still come in and trade the most enormous size of contracts and bully the market? There is still an element, and it comes down to the appetite of your risk, of, of your, bank's, your, your bank's risk appetite. Some banks have a much greater risk appetite than other banks. But on, in general, on average, the appetite of almost all banks is massively diminished. And... Uh, the risks are really being taken in the hedge fund community by the likes of Brevin Howard and so. So I, I think banks are less risky. Do you mind if I just ask another quick one about kind of consumer loans that were that had swaps alongside them? Do you have any sense of the overall scale of that? Obviously, Dexia sort of managed to bankrupt a lot of the... I know, and, and all banks have uh, remediation units to deal with customer complaints, and it's been a big feature, as I say, because interest rates have so wrong-footed people. So people have been left with these, these terrifically expensive legacy trades. Some people would say that, uh, OK, interest rates haven't risen, and yes, you've ended up with swap contracts that cost you a lot of money. But it's like an insurance contract. To some extent, some people might say, as long as it was sold to you in a way in which you understood it from the first place, I think that some people try and say, well... I wasn't burgled last year, so I don't need my insurance contract, so I'm going to cash it in. But a lot of people were sold on suitable products, which have come home to roost, and they're being compensated. And my understanding is that um, the likes of Royal Bank of Scotland, Barclays, that had a lot of this stuff, 
They've generally paid out on most of it, I believe. The banks have taken the hit, yeah. Just one more question. If you, okay, sorry, thank you. Ask your questions afterwards. We'll okay, break away. so I can sort of confirm the, your response to the last question, having briefly worked at Deloitte as one of the experts assessing the mis-selling of interest rate products by one of the big banks. So I think the main beneficiaries were partly the customers who got some money back and firms like Deloitte that earned a lot of fees for that work, but never mind. So my question is just really about KPIs, because obviously, as you say, your job description and the, what your priorities are for the business seem to have changed, and it's obviously not just about making P&L for the swaps desk. So perhaps you could just explain that, because in a way that would help to point to what the priorities are for the way you manage that part of the business. Well, the way I now see the role of derivatives, I don't see it as a profit-generating activity. I more see it as something to... Uh, help to create optimal cost of funding for my treasury desk. And I think that more and more so banks view um, anything other than that, at that activity to, to be surplus to requirement. It does depend on the bank you work for. Some banks are still quite aggressive and take a different view. I think we're going to end up in a world with maybe just three investment banks at some point in the next five years. And I think they will be Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and, um, and Morgan Stanley. I think Citibank, Bank of America, and Deutsche are going to fall by the way in terms of their activities. We've seen UBS and Credit Suisse pull out. Barclays, we're not sure what's going to happen with Barclays. We know that uh, we have um, Bramson, who's agitating for the bank to get out of investment banking as is it's, it's a, a massive um, downward force upon their return on equity and a poor use of their allocated capital. But I think that there has been a sea change in the way in which derivatives are used. But as I said from the beginning, I believe that there will always be a place for derivatives because they are the world's financial oil. They just have to be used in a different way. And I think the regulators have seen fit or have... It, <laughs> have effectively created a framework in which it's quite difficult for speculative activity to be profitable in bank space. Outside of bank space, that's a different matter altogether. And I think that's where a lot of the speculative dangerous activity is now happening. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.